Well, good morning, everybody. We're so glad you could join us this morning for church. You're going to make your way in. We are going to begin worship with our new, our new song, This Is Our God. Would you stand and sing with us?
Good morning. You may be seated. It's a, a joy to, to gather with you here on this, our first Sunday as we enter into the season of Lent and as we just sang or the season where we remember all that Jesus is, all that he did, how he did indeed bear the cross. He, he beat the grave on our behalf. And so it's a joy to come together with you this morning and celebrate that fact. If you are new or you're visiting here this morning, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you are here with us this morning. Just a couple of announcements to bring to your attention. One is that next Sunday, March 5th, following the, following the Sunday school hour, we will have our quarterly congregational meeting. So in that meeting, we'll, we'll vote on some new members. We will... Um, share some updates about things going on in the life of the church. So if you are new and want to know more about the church, that'd be a way for you to hear more about that. If you're already a member here, we'd love to have you be there to, to vote on members and to hear more about what's going on in the life of the church. This morning, following the service, we will have a couple of Sunday school opportunities. So downstairs, there'll be Sunday school for children. And then up here, there'll be two things going on. In, in this room, we will discuss the book Essential Christianity. Um, so if you're Part of that study would invite you to be part of that discussion. If you don't know what that's about, but just curious, you're often welcome to come, show up, and be a part of that. And then over in the library wing, um, there will be a discussion of the sermon led by Eric Gustafson uh, this morning. And so if you just want to talk more about what you hear in the sermon, you're welcome to join Eric over in the library and um, discuss that. Just a couple other announcements. So... In a couple of weeks, on March 11th, Elaine Altman, who's a longtime member here, will be in town visiting. So there's information about where you can um, get a chance to see her, visit with her in the back of your bulletin. Um, so we invite you to take advantage of that if that's something you're interested in as well. Uh, if you are new or visiting, if there's anything you want to communicate with the church this morning, there's a Connect card in the seat in front of you. I'll invite you to fill that out. You can drop those in the offering boxes on the back wall on your way out. Those boxes are also where tithes and offering can be placed this morning. But as we continue in this time of worship, I invite you to enter into a time of prayer with me. Father, we thank you for the chance to come together, to gather in this place as we enter into this Lent season as we remember all that Jesus did for us, how he lived a sinless life and yet died a painful death on the cross in our place. We come and we're thankful for all that you've done for us in Jesus. Father, I pray that as we, as we sing this morning, as we hear your word this morning, as we fellowship with one another this morning, all of it would remind us of your goodness to us, of your love for us as you've, that you demonstrated for us in sending Jesus, that we would be in awe of all that you've done for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Father, I pray for each of us here that 
because of all that takes place this morning, we would be drawn closer to you. We would love you more, that we would live lives that live more like Jesus' life through what takes place here. And Father, for those who may have walked in this morning hurting and suffering, pray that you would be with them, that you would bring comfort and peace where it is needed, that you would bring hope and encouragement where it's needed, that you would bring healing where it's needed. That as we gather, as we worship together, we would be encouraged. We'd have a deeper sense of what a great and loving and caring and gracious God you are. Praise on Jesus' name. Amen. Do you stand as we continue in worship this morning?
Father, you are indeed great, and it is. Precious gift you have given us to use the, the breath in our lungs that you've given us to pour out our praise to you. Would we not forget that every breath is indeed a gift to be used for your glory? Would we do that this morning? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. pretty much impossible to raise small children in this time period without being at least a little bit aware of the brand Baby Einstein. They make books and DVDs and whatever else, right? And they chose the name Baby Einstein because, like, of course, you want your baby to be like Einstein. Never mind the fact that he was famously difficult and a bad husband, to say the least. Like, as long as your baby's smart, right, that's all that really matters. Right? Like, like, we associate the name Einstein with just genius. But I find the, the story of Einstein interesting. Right? In, in 1900, Einstein graduated with a degree in physics and mathematics and was given a, a federal teaching diploma in Switzerland. So hoping to teach physics and math, he applied to numerous colleges and universities throughout Europe. And not one of them accepted him. He spent two years applying for teaching positions, and every time he was rejected. And finally, after two years of rejection and fruitless searching, he needed to pay the bills. And so he gave up and he accepted a position as an assistant examiner in the Swiss patent office. And that would have been understandable, right, if in the midst of those trials and those rejections, Einstein had simply said to the scientific world, like, I'm done. Like, I don't need you. I'm, I'm content just being a patent examiner. I'm good here. But even amidst his rejections, Einstein continued with his scientific pursuits and interests. He, he founded this informal group called the Olympia Academy, where, three, or, where he and a few of his friends would meet and they would read the latest scientific literature and they would discuss the latest scientific ideas. And he kept working on his own studies and his own papers, even though he'd been rejected. He kept working even while he was working in the patent office and in his free time he would work on papers. And in 1905, while working as a low-level employee in the patent office, Einstein published four groundbreaking breakthrough scientific papers. One of them on something called Brownian motion. Another one on something called the photoelectric effect. One of the papers was where he introduced his theory of special relativity to the world. And the last paper he published was on the mass energy equivalent, which is the paper where he introduced the formula E equals MC squared to the world. It's now been called the most famous formula in the world, and that's where it appeared the first time. All those papers in one year, because all those papers appeared in that one year, right, 1905 has been called Einstein's Annus Mirabilis, or his miraculous year. Here's the crazy thing. 
even after he published those four papers in 1905, he still didn't get any kind of teaching job until 1908. And he wasn't made a full professor anywhere until 1911. He would still face rejection, even in that time. From there, of course, his, his career accelerated quickly, and he, he won the Nobel Prize in physics in 1921. Interestingly, he won the Nobel Prize for one of those papers from 1905. But it wasn't his paper on special relativity or his paper where he introduced E equals MC squared, which is what he's kind of remembered for today. He actually won his Nobel Prize for his paper on the photoelectric effect. But here's kind of why I tell that whole story, right? Einstein was continually rejected by the scientific community in a variety of ways. And yet he continued to pursue science and to seek to spread his own ideas. And today his ideas are the foundations for modern physics. And while, of course, the analogy is not perfect, in, in today's passage we also see Jesus being rejected in a variety of ways by a variety of people. But as the rest of the story of Jesus plays out, what we see amazingly is that Jesus doesn't say to those who reject him, ah, just forget you then. Instead, he, he continues to pursue them the way Einstein continued to pursue his scientific career. And what we'll see this morning is that while people may reject Jesus, Jesus keeps on pursuing them. What today's passage is, we're in Luke chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 54. What we'll see in this passage is that there are, are three different people or groups of people who reject Jesus. And they reject him in different ways, with different attitudes, but they still reject him. And what we'll see is that the ways people rejected Jesus back then are quite similar to ways that people still reject Jesus today. So just as a reminder of where we are in the whole kind of grand scheme of Luke. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the Last Supper where Jesus predicted that one of his disciples would betray him. And at the Last Supper, like, Peter stood up and he confidently assured Jesus, like, somebody else may betray you, but I'll always stand with you. I will always be ready to fight for you to the death. I'll go to prison for you. I'll go to death for you, Jesus. I will always stand up for you. But then Jesus looked at Peter, and he kind of puts him in his place, and he tells Peter, Peter, before the rooster crows this morning, you will deny me three times. And from there, they, they head out to the Mount of Olives, where Judas leads a mob to arrest Jesus. And Peter, eager to prove that Jesus is wrong, that he really is willing to risk his life, he grabs his sword, he pulls it, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And he said, look, Jesus, like I'm here, I'm, I'm fighting for you, I'm willing to defend you. But Jesus doesn't want his disciples to fight for him in that way, and so he heals the ear of the high priest's servant, and Jesus submits himself to arrest. And now as we pick up the story this morning, they, they arrest Jesus and they lead him off to trial before the Jewish leaders. And we see in the midst of that trial that, that Peter's resolve. When he's no longer right in the presence of Jesus, his resolve falters. 
We pick up Luke's telling of the event in verse 44, where Luke writes, Then, seizing him, that's Jesus, they, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. It's amazing how, how quickly Peter can go from drawing his sword to defend Jesus despite being outnumbered by an angry mob. He's brave in that moment. To all of a sudden being too scared to admit to a little servant girl that he even knows Jesus. How did this change happen so quickly and so drastically in Peter? But there's one important and significant difference between the scene in the garden where he pulls his sword and the scene here around the fire. And that is that when Peter pulled his sword in the garden, he knew that Jesus and the other disciples were watching. They could see him. He felt the need to prove himself to Jesus who was right there watching him. But now, here in the courtyard, Peter looks around and he doesn't see anyone he needs to impress with his bravery. He thinks he can get away with denying Jesus without anyone finding out. So, in his mind, why risk it? Jesus isn't here to see. No one will know. So what's the harm in saying, I don't know Jesus? And the pattern continues in verse 58. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter's kind of northern Galilean accent gives him away, and they recognize that he is from Galilee. There's not really any good reason for him to be there unless he's with Jesus. And Peter replied still, despite his accent giving him away, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. This is Peter's third denial now. And Matthew's Gospel tells us that at the third denial, not only did Peter just deny Jesus. He actually called down curses and swore oaths that he did not know Jesus. And what happens next must have been just incredibly painful for Peter. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Just as Jesus had predicted. Peter denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows. And then, what would be one of the most like, soul-rending moments in all the Bible we read, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. 
We don't know how it would play out that Jesus could see Peter in that moment, but somehow, in some circumstance, Jesus had a chance to look at Peter as he made his third and final denial. Peter rejecting Jesus. And he realizes that Jesus sees his rejection. Jesus knows his rejection. So Peter, the first of three people we see in this passage to reject Jesus. And of the three rejections we'll look at this morning, he's probably the one that most of us in this room can most relate to. Because Peter has been a follower of Jesus. Peter has been on Jesus' side basically from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But now in this moment of weakness and under pressure from a hostile world around him, Peter denies that he knows or is in any way affiliated with Jesus. I think Peter's rejection here has something to say to two different groups of people in the world today who would reject Jesus. One group is a group of people who, who claim to follow Jesus, who show up at churches, and who, who follow him when it's convenient. When it's helpful for them, when it's useful for their career, for their life in some way. But as soon as it costs them something to be affiliated with Jesus, they're out. In his book, Onward, Russell Moore tells the story of this atheist friend he had. And he had had many debates with this friend about the existence of God. And, and one day, out of nowhere, this friend calls up Moore and he asks him, hey, can you find me a good Southern Baptist church, but one that isn't too Southern Baptisty?" And here's how Moore tells the rest of the story. He says, surprised to find myself here in the turn lane of someone's Damascus road, I, I stammered that I didn't even know he had become a Christian. I was waiting for his eyes to well up with tears as he would recount, recount how my rendition of the theistic argument for design had clinched the decision for him, saving him forever from atheism and despair. But he rolled his eyes. I don't believe any of that stuff, he said but I want to go into politics. And I'm never going to be elected to anything in this state if I'm not a church member. Moore goes on to say of this friend, he was willing to strike a deal with an innocuous form of Christianity in order to get what he wanted out of, quote, real life. Church membership would protect him from cultural marginalization, which was to him scarier than hell. So that's the first group that Peter's rejection speaks to. We might call it like cultural Christianity. There's a, there's a chance, right, that some of you here this morning, may, whether you know it or not, may fall into this group. Right? That you've, you come to church because it's what you've always done, or because you have friends in church, or because you like the way coming to church makes you feel, or because you think you get something for your own life out of church. But you've never actually chosen to follow Jesus. You've never placed your faith in him. You've never committed yourself to being one of his followers. And maybe if you like really stopped and examined your heart, 
you know that if it became too costly from a social perspective to follow Jesus, you would bail out. And it's happening quite frequently in today's world. It's not hard to find studies and news reports of of the shrinking number of Christians in the United States. And all those those reports can and maybe should be worrying, a lot of those shrinking numbers actually come from the fact that people who once called themselves Christians because it was culturally convenient no longer feel the need to. They were never really following Jesus in the first place. It was just the easy thing for them to do. So I just encourage you to like, examine yourself this morning and ask yourself the question, do I call myself a Christian because I really believe that I'm a, a sinner in need of grace? That I really believe that the only way for me to receive that grace is because Jesus died on a cross on my behalf to pay the penalty for my sins? Do I really believe that He died for me and so I want to live my life dedicated to doing whatever is for His glory? Or if you truly examine your heart, do you find that like, you call yourself a Christian because it's what you've always done? That was what you were raised to do? Because it's what worked for you? But you know that if it stopped working, if it stopped being convenient, it wouldn't be that hard for you to stop calling yourself a Christian. And look, if you examine your heart, and you, and you find that that is where you're at, my hope is not that you feel judged or condemned. Like, I'm not here to condemn you for any of that. In fact, that's where I was most of my own life. Like, I went to church. I had friends at church. And going to church and being involved in youth group activities, which is kind of part of what I did. I was happy and it was good and it was easy. It wasn't until I, I went to college that I really confronted the question, do I really believe this stuff about Jesus? What do I really believe? Do I really believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is? Do I really believe that this man who lived 2,000 years ago loves me the way that the Bible says that he loves me? Do I really believe that he capable of the miracles that the Bible says he performed? Do I really believe that he was God incarnate, God in the flesh? And that he really came to earth and really lived a sinless life and was killed on a cross to pay the penalty for my sins? Do I really believe all that? Or do I just go to church and do religious activity because it's fun and easy and make my life better? And it took me a while to get there, but when I, I realized that, yeah, I really do believe those things, what I found out was that trusting Jesus and having a deep and personal relationship with Him, believing that He truly loved me and truly died for me, like all that led to a far deeper, far richer experience than anything simply calling myself a Christian because it's convenient could offer. So that's you this morning. If you're here, 
and you just call yourself a Christian because it's what you've always done or because it's convenient. I really don't want you to feel judged. But I do want to invite you into a far deeper and richer experience that comes with truly trusting and believing in Jesus. Of truly being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Of having God's power dwelling in you. Of having confidence that God truly hears you when you pray. And that God truly loves you and desires good things for you. you are here and you've never done that, like I just urge you to like, pray. Like, God, I, I know I need Jesus. Not because He makes my life convenient, but because apart from Him, my sin means that I deserve hell. The Father, help me to trust in Jesus and, and live my life dedicated to His glory. That's the first group that Peter's rejection speaks to. Those who have been associated with Jesus, but never really followed Him. And when they face trials, they will deny Jesus because they never trusted Jesus in the first place. The second group of people that, that Peter's rejection can speak to is those who are, are genuine followers of Jesus, who, who genuinely, genuinely desire to follow Him, but just in a moment of weakness, when they feel threatened or under pressure, when they think no one is watching, they deny Jesus. Maybe this is someone who, who works in an environment that's kind of hostile to Christianity, and they're under pressure to act in some way that goes against their Christian beliefs, and under that pressure, maybe feeling like their job and their well-being and their family's well-being is threatened, they, they give in and they comply with whatever their company's asking them to do give in to that pressure. Maybe it's not rejecting Jesus verbally the way Peter does, but it's rejecting him by action. They're, they're truly a follower of Jesus. They truly love him, but in that moment, the pressure and the fear gets to them and they, they deny Jesus. Oh, they're two di- very different scenarios. Right? One person who, who only acts like they love Jesus when it's convenient. And the other person who genuinely loves Jesus, but in a moment of weakness, denies Him. So the important question is, maybe you've had a moment of denial in your life, and the question then becomes, which group am I in? Which group was Peter in? I think we find the answer in verse 62. This is Peter. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. The question is, when you realize that Jesus does actually see you and he knows you and he cares about how you represent him in the world, when you realize that Jesus sees and knows your denials and your sins, do those denials and sins, do they cause you to weep bitterly? Do they cause you to mourn over your brokenness? That cause you to mourn over your sin that you deny him this way? Do you feel broken the way that Peter does here over the fact that he didn't stand up for his Lord and Savior? And if you're, you find your sin doesn't break you, 
you find your sin doesn't really cause you to mourn, then you're probably in that first group. And what you need is to run to Jesus and place your trust in Him and ask Him to forgive you for your sins. But if your sin does break you, it does cause you to mourn and to weep the way Peter does here, but then you, you should still run to Jesus. But not out of fear that you're not forgiven. Instead, you, you run to Jesus confident that you already are forgiven. And you run to Him in repentance and ask Him to help you be more faithful in the future, but confident that you are still forgiven by Him. When we run to Jesus in that way, we'll find that there is, there is great hope and encouragement for us. In a few minutes, we'll come back and we'll look at how Jesus responds to Peter's rejection. And what we'll see is that Peter, Jesus does not respond to Peter's rejection by rejecting Peter, but he accepts Peter. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But first, let's briefly look at two other rejections of Jesus in this passage. In verse 63, we continue, and it says, The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. So here we see the guard rejecting Jesus by outright mocking him. And there are many people in our world today who would reject Jesus in a similar way. That it's not simply enough to ignore him or to kind of disregard him but they feel they need to outright mock Jesus, anyone who believes in him. And in this case, like the guards take turns hitting Jesus, and they, they challenge Jesus to figure out who hit you based on your prophecy. Like, Come on, Jesus. They're mocking him. It's pure mockery. On the other hand, we see a third group that rejects Jesus, and it's the religious leaders. And while they end up rejecting Jesus in a less mocking way, their, their rejection is no less complete. We read about that in verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders and the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. And what's important for us to see here is that the religious leaders reject Jesus not because of his moral teachings. There are many things that, the, that Jesus taught that the religious leaders would agree with. Like, yes, there's areas of disagreement, but there are also areas that they agree. And those disagreements are not what brings Jesus to the point of being put to death on a cross. Right? It's not his moral teachings that get him primarily in trouble. What ultimately causes the religious leader to reject Jesus and for them to desire that he be put to death 
is to claim that He is the Son of God. It's His claim of, of supernatural divinity that it gets Him in trouble. Not His earthly moral teachings. That's what offends the religious leaders. And there are many people like this in our world today as well. Right? That people who are happy to accept the teachings of Jesus as one possible option for how to live a moral life. People who are happy to, to see Jesus as a good moral teacher or as an example of what a good life lived may look like. The people are happy to live in a world where, where Jesus is purely one good moral example out of many. But when the conversation turns and they're asked to accept that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God incarnate, God in flesh, and as the Son of God, He has a claim on their life. They're asked to accept that Jesus is not merely a good, moral, human teacher, but God himself in flesh, and that is too far for them. There are many people in the world who are happy to accept the humanity of Jesus, but not the divinity of Jesus. So they reject him when they get to claims of divinity. And so in this passage, we see three rejections of Jesus. And those three rejections are examples of the way we see people still reject Jesus today. Peter kind of is an example of those who associate with Jesus, but when the going gets tough, reject him. The guard represent those who, who mock Jesus and all that he represents. The religious leaders are, are those who are happy to, to live in a world where Jesus and his moral teachings are one option, but can't abide for him to claim that he is the Son of God, who has the right to hold everyone accountable for their actions. So it's these three kind of groups of people, and, but ultimately, just like the whole Bible, this passage is not primarily about us, it's about Jesus. And the most important thing for us to see in this passage is how would Jesus respond to these rejections? We need to fast forward a little bit in the gospel to see some of these reactions, some of Jesus' response, but it's worth doing, I think, to make full sense of what's going on here. So let's start with Jesus' response to the guards. In this passage itself, it's worth noting that as the guards mock Jesus, we get no recorded response from Jesus. He simply seems to sit there and endure their mocking. He very well could have done what they said. He could have prophesied. He could have known which of the guards hit him. But he didn't do it. He sat there and endured their mocking. And then as he hangs on the cross, the guards are at the base of the cross, and they're casting lots to see who gets to take Jesus' clothing home with them. And how does Jesus respond? He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We don't know if the guards at the cross were the same guards at the trial. But we can be sure that Jesus' attitude was the same. 
Instead of responding to their mocking with vitriol and scorn, he asked God to forgive them. But to add the question, is that how you respond to your enemies? Is that how you respond to those who mock you for your faith? You respond by loving your enemies the way Jesus loved his enemies and sought their forgiveness? Or do you respond with defensiveness and feeling a need to defend Jesus? Jesus here, he has a, he has a confidence rooted in the sovereignty of God that allowed him to endure the mocking without needing to defend himself without needing to respond in kind. Judge that. You have the same kind of trust in the sovereignty of God. Are you confident that God sees the sins of others and will deal with them in His own time? And until that time comes, do you earnestly hope that your enemies will turn to Jesus and receive forgiveness? Do you pray for your enemies? Father, forgive them. Or do you seek to pay them back in kind? Do you hope and pray like Jesus that your enemies will receive the same forgiveness from the Father that you received when you were a sinner? That's how Jesus responds to the mocking rejection of the guards. He didn't stop pursuing them. He didn't stop hoping they would receive forgiveness. That's how we ought to respond to, to those around us who mock us for our faith. Likewise, with the religious leader, Jesus didn't stop pursuing them. In the book of Acts, the, the disciples receive the Spirit of God at Pentecost. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They become Jesus' representatives on earth. And they are repeatedly brought then before these same religious leaders. And as they're brought before these leaders, each time they faithfully proclaim who Jesus is and what he has done. And in so doing, he gives the religious leaders of Israel a chance to respond and to to place their faith in Jesus. And we see throughout the book of Acts, the, the disciples perform miracle after miracle after miracle. Certainly God could have given them the miraculous power to perform acts of vengeance against those who persecuted them. But God didn't give them that power. That's not how they were called to treat the religious leaders. Instead, Jesus keeps pursuing these religious leaders who rejected him. And one of those religious leaders was a man named Saul. We don't know for sure if Saul was at the trial of Jesus, but because he was probably a member of the Sanhedrin, it's possible he was there. Saul is this man. He's violently opposed to Christians. He's overseeing the killings of Christians. And one, he's on his way to kill more followers of Jesus. When Jesus shows up to him in a blinding light on the road to Damascus, he invites Saul to follow him. And Saul does. And his name changes from Saul to Paul. And he becomes one of the most important figures in the life of the early church. 
He writes many of the books in the New Testament. He plants some of the first churches all throughout the region around Israel. Jesus could have written off the religious leaders. He could have written off Saul. He could have let them get what they deserve for their rejection of him. But Jesus kept on pursuing. And despite Saul overseeing the killing of Christians, Jesus still offered him forgiveness and still had a place for him in his kingdom and his plan. Maybe you have someone in your life who is like the guard or like the religious leaders and they have no interest in Jesus. If you have someone who seems beyond hope, beyond forgiveness, my hope for you is that you will not give up hope for them. That Jesus is still at work. He's still pursuing. And no one is too far gone for Jesus to stop giving up, stop pursuing them. So don't lose hope. Jesus is still pursuing. I'll close this morning by looking at Jesus' response to Peter's rejection. I said at the beginning, like Peter's rejection is probably the one that most resonates with us in this room because it's done by someone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. And yet in a moment of weakness, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. Then the question becomes, how is Jesus going to respond to that denial by Peter? We see the answer in John chapter 21. After his resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. And he has this exchange with Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then he said to him, follow me. Three times, Jesus asks Peter to affirm that he loves him. And three times, Peter affirms it. Three times, Peter had rejected Jesus. And now three times, Peter reaffirms his love for Jesus. And Jesus' response is to give him a task to do. Feed my sheep and follow me. Jesus continued to pursue Peter. Jesus is the one who showed up. Jesus is the one who arranged this circumstance. Jesus is the one who asked Peter the question whether he loved him or not. Jesus could have left Peter to wrestle with the consequences of his rejection on his own. But instead, Jesus shows up and he orchestrates this moment where he restores Peter. Where he assures Peter that he 
loves him, where he assures Peter that despite his past failure, there's still a place for Peter in the kingdom of heaven, and there's still a role for Peter to do in advancing the kingdom here on earth. Jesus did not leave Peter to deal with his rejection on his own. He came to Peter. He restored him. It's a picture of grace. If you find yourself in a situation where you've sinned against Jesus and it brings you shame the way Peter's rejection must have brought Peter shame, just take heart from this story. Know that Jesus will not write you off. Know that Jesus in His grace wants nothing more than to see you restored. Know that Jesus' death on the cross already paid the consequences for that sin. And through Jesus, those sins are already forgiven. That Jesus still loves you. Jesus still has a role for you in His kingdom. In 2 Timothy, that Saul who turned into Paul writes this. He writes, If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot disown Himself. That's the great hope that Peter's story offered us. We will have moments of faithlessness, but Jesus remains faithful. Let's pray. Father, we indeed praise you that even when we are faithless, even when we sin, even when we through our actions reject and deny you, you are still faithful. We praise you that our relationship with you and our status with you does not depend on our works, but on the work you've already accomplished through your death and resurrection. Father, would we learn from Peter when we sin, when we deny you, when we reject you, would we throw ourselves on your mercy and grace? Confident that you love us, confident that you still have a place for us in your kingdom, that you still have a role for us to do in advancing your kingdom here and now. Father, for those people in our lives who our hearts break for, who have constantly rejected you, would you work? Would you... Give us confidence that you are still pursuing them. Would you 
work to soften hearts. Draw people to yourself. Draw our loved ones who have rejected you to yourself. You give us the confidence to not give up. Confidence that you are still at work. You are still pursuing. Father, as we we face situations in this life where we're tempted to deny you, when we're under pressure, to disown you, to, to claim we're not affiliated with you, would you give us confidence and boldness the way you did for Peter later in his life to proudly and boldly proclaim the good news of your gospel. To no longer deny you, but to proudly and boldly affiliate ourselves with you, confident that you are mighty and powerful. You are good and gracious. You have a good plan for our lives. Father, would we go glorifying you? Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you go this morning from here? Would you go that Jesus is still at work to pursue you and to pursue those around you who are in need of him. And would you go confident that no matter what may come, he is with you and he loves you. You are dismissed.